Has the internet permanently ruined good faith? The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. And now, here he is, Mr. Womp himself, Don Rickles. recently became obsessed with an old Don Rickles documentary. It's called Mr. Warmth, and it came out in 2007 when Don Rickles was still alive. My fascination centered around the fact that Don Rickles' act, almost unquestionably, could not exist in the world today. If you've never heard of Don Rickles or seen his act, it's insult comedy rooted in the ethnically entrenched world of the 50s and 60s. I hope you get old. Go home and die. I'll tell you this. Try to do a goddamn job and there's no... You people in the back, you got screwed with those cheap seats. I'll tell you this. Well, how'd the Chinamen get in here? I'll tell you this. 40 million Jews, they got a chink sitting right in the goddamn front. It doesn't involve race. It is obsessed with race. It doesn't traffic in stereotypes... It's based on them. So why was the question that kept running around my head? Why is his act a famous one that was revered, at least in 2007? Why could that not exist today? I got a few options here for you. First, Don Rickles act is racist. The elimination of the acceptance of his act is proof that we are making strides in racial equality. The fact that it ever existed is proof of our racist past. Number two, we were tougher in the past. We allowed for comedy to be comedy and not an end-all, be-all statement about society. As we have weakened, we reject such notions. And number three... Audiences experienced Rickles differently from the moment they saw him on film or television, purchased a ticket to a live show or walked into a theater. The entire experience was unlike the way we process pop culture. Heads up, I'm going to leave options one and two for other podcasts. They are certainly rich discussions, but I assure you that there are other places where you can download audio of men with beards delving into the topics of race and fragility. What I want to discuss here is how we process the world in our modern era. While I am forever an internet optimist, I do wonder if our access to social proof has hindered our ability to muster good faith. If I'm right, I further wonder if this is only a phase or a more permanent change. All right, now imagine this for me. You work downtown in a city you love. 
Every day, you walk the same three blocks to work. The walk becomes a part of you. You know how it looks different in the summer versus the winter. You notice when storefronts are being renovated into restaurants. You can accurately guess which restaurants will fail based on the happy hour crowd when you walk home. You time the podcast you listen to so they fit better with the walk. You do this for 10 years in good times and bad. It is a part of you. Then one day, on that same walk, you get robbed. You don't go to the hospital or anything, but you lose your wallet and phone. You feel violated, angry, helpless. And the next time you have to go to work, you walk a different way. So let's recap. You've walked the same way for a decade. It's routine. One bad thing happens once and you never walk that way again. Now, of course, we'll justify it for a million reasons. It was time for a change. You don't feel comfortable. But the reality is if that one bad thing never happened, you would have never thought about walking any other path. One bad piece of evidence poisoned the pattern. Now, let's apply that to the Internet. I personally believe that humanity is essentially good. I think that we have it in our self-interest to get along with other people. I think it fuels us to test our beliefs, to test our theories against people for whom we are curious about. I think it's like our hypothetical walk to work. It's not always the best, but it is our routine. What's different in the world of the internet is that one bad piece of evidence is a lot more common than our once-in-a-decade hypothetical mugging. The reality of a moderatorless forum designed for pure engagement like Twitter and Facebook is that bad pieces of evidence are often the most popular content, not only for the platforms to serve you, but also for us to seek out. Users are rewarded for finding or manufacturing these pieces of evidence. Algorithms push them to the top because they get the most engagement, which means more impressions, which means more potential ad space. But here's the question. Are there actually more bad pieces of evidence than before? Or are we simply highlighting the ones that we would have found anyway? beyond our previous comprehension. For the sake of argument, let's say that there are not more instances of these bad pieces of evidence. Let's say we are magnifying these moments. What kind of cumulative effect does that have on our expectation of good faith? Does the ability to expect good, fair, or dare I say enjoyable discourse have any room to grow if we are constantly being served or hunting for the worst of humanity.
After thinking about this for a few weeks, I've come to the following conclusion. I believe that Don Rickles was popular with his audience for a and few now, reasons. Is, First, the world was Don different. Rickles. For a variety of reasons, from the highway system to cheaper plane tickets to higher fidelity televisions, race and ethnicity had never been as far in the foreground of our pop culture than it was as he was becoming a star. It mattered to be Italian, German, Jewish, or black. Not simply in a discriminatory way, although that too. In a pre-internet world, it was a marker of tribal denomination. It either said a little something about you or gave you something that you wanted to react against. Regardless of what it meant to you or your neighbor, it certainly was a topic of conversation. And also, then as it is now, the topics were sensitive. It was impolite to bring up. Which is why Don Rickles was valuable. He didn't care. And listen to what I'm saying. He didn't care. A bigot cares about your differences. Rickles didn't care. He didn't care in the way that a barbershop doesn't care about your feelings. In the way that your family doesn't care. In the way that your best friends don't care when they are just saying the thing that needs to be said to make you laugh. And let's go further with that last example. Because Don Rickles was famous as an actor, but he was more famous for being a guest on talk shows, specifically Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. There, on the clearinghouse of all celebrity, Rickles would roast the top of the entertainment ladder on religious and ethnic lines. So if you purchased a ticket to his show and he asked if you were Italian, the ensuing mafioso jokes he laid on you would be the same that he laid on his friend Frank Sinatra. And I get that you'll excuse us, won't you? Certainly, certainly. Marco Mangananzo was hurt. Guido says hi. He hasn't had a chance to talk to you. And from Jersey City, your good friend, Bubani Umbazza. What's he his started name his car. <laughs> he started his car with your album on, and now he's a highway. The black joke's the same as he dished to Sammy Davis Jr. He's wonderful black man. Sam, I kid you, we know each other a lot of years, really. And I love the black people. We need you people, I swear, because no Jew's going to make up a train. <laughs> and so on. And so on. The jokes are intimate. But intimacy needs to be expected. Like a vampire, it needs to be explicitly invited in. If you don't walk into a theater with good faith, then Rickles is just a deranged racist. And that's the difference. That's why he can't have a career today. Is I don't know... If on the mainstream pop culture level, you could muster that much good faith. 
obviously you see how this connects to politics. I love politics in part because it is a bad faith discussion. I adore the corridors of our society where civility is suspended because they show us what civility really is. Politics at its best is that. Every little candidate flub in the hand of the opposition is a deliberate act of stupidity or cruelty or both. Politicians ask for this. They enter into a brutal world where they win and get paid to lead. On the state and national level, winners almost always leave with more money or opportunity than they started with. What's changed is our attachment to not only candidates, but parties year round. The bad faith we practice toward the active combatants has trickled down to everyone. Everywhere. And I don't blame us. Because we have access to proof. Solid proof. Well, sometimes not so solid. But still, emotionally compelling truth. That the other guys are exactly who we thought they were. And it only takes one piece of that evidence to make us never want to take that walk again. We laugh. Why do we laugh? Black and white. Because we must laugh. That's right. Look look who became the priest. Hey guys, Justin here. So, uh, hopefully you enjoyed that. That was a fun little essay that I put together. I, because of COVID and other random stuff, I'm not going to be able to do a full episode this week, but we have our friend Andrew Heaton who allowed us to drop in an episode that he very recently did that he's very proud of and I'm proud to share with you. This is the Political Orphanage episode about psychedelics. Fun conversations and just listening to Andrew Heaton discuss psychedelics is well worth your time. Hopefully, you enjoy it. We're back to normal next week. See you. Hello, and welcome to the Political Orphanage, a home for pucky misfits and problem solvers. I'm your host, Andrew Heaton. Okay, this episode is a weird one. We're going to talk about drugs with two people, two different interviews. I am going to bring on my old comedy writing partner to discuss psychedelics. And then I will also speak with a prominent OnlyFans person about the time she did LSD every single week for a year. But I'm not going to tell you which is which. You'll just have to figure that out on your own through context. So this is a very, very fun episode. I mean... Literally, I am talking about doing drugs with a comedian and a sex worker. The latter of which, I'm not making this up, was getting dressed and doing her makeup while I spoke with her on camera, which made for both an interesting and challenging interview for one Andrew Heaton consummate professional. So noting all of that, let me first explain why we're about to go on this delightful romp of a psychedelic adventure together. Now granted, 
I would have enjoyed talking about eating mushrooms and acid with my comedian and new OnlyFans buddy anyway, but there's also a policy dimension to all of this. So far as Uncle Sam and his drug war are concerned, whether you think psychedelics are fun, epiphanal, dangerous, or immoral, doesn't matter. Either way, they're illegal. According to federal law, you can't do psychedelics, and even if you don't, well, we're going to tax you for your money to police people who do anyway. So it involves all of us. And psychedelics, specifically LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, peyote, and DMT, are all Schedule One drugs. That is to say, according to the federal government, they are, quote, substances or chemicals defined as drugs with no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse, end quote. Well, no benefits? None? Whatsoever? They don't make Cheetos taste better or make Wes Anderson films more colorful? There's none? We've outlawed these things, psychedelics, and dedicated billions of tax dollars for their eradication on the premise that they are entirely harmful, with no potential upside, even if methodically administered as a medical treatment by a qualified doctor in a lab coat. So today on the program, we're going to talk to two very smart people who have firsthand experience with psychedelics about their upsides, their downsides, and just what they're like. Last year on this program, I spoke to Harvard economist Jeff Myron about the economic and policy side of the drug war, which I will link to in the episode description of today's show. You can check that out if you want to get into the policy analysis of all of this. But today... We're going to talk to people about the experiential side of psychedelics and how they can be helpful or harmful. Get some inside info. But before we jump in, let's get the obligatory stuff out of the way here. First, I am not a doctor. I am certainly not your doctor. I highly suggest if you want to take medical advice from a comedian, you find a funnier comedian than me to take it from. Second, if you have neurochemical imbalances or existing mental health issues, I would be very careful about using the psychedelics we're going to amusingly explore in today's episode. Maybe they would make your issues worse. Maybe they'd cure them. Maybe they'd give you superpowers. I have no idea. I am a mid-level comedian. Point is, be careful. Third, this is just me talking. If you're less than 23, which is to say your brain has not reached full maturation, I would steer clear of any of this stuff. Lord Uncle Heaton recommends you don't do anything that messes with your brain until your brain is properly seated in an upright position. And finally, if you support the show on Patreon, I promise not to use any of the money you graciously send my way to buy drugs. I won't buy drugs with any of the money you send me on Patreon to support the program. Now, admittedly, this is not so much because of any journalistic integrity on my part, but because I have no idea how I would go about finding a drug dealer. I would literally just wander around an alley looking for a guy in a trench coat, and if by some miracle I found one, say, Hail, good fellow, have you any illicit narcotics I might purchase? And even if I did somehow stumble onto a drug dealer, and he didn't run away after I said that, I would still come off like a total narc. There's no way the guy would ever sell anything to me. He would absolutely think I'm a cop. Or not even a cop. I, I can't pull that off. I can't claim anyone would mistake me for a cop. I would probably be mistaken as some kind of sub-accountant at the Bureau of Firearms, Tobacco, and Alcohol. I'd be like a paper pusher 
for federal cops. So if you do sign up on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Andrew Heaton, I have no choice but to use it to further the mission of this show, to explore interesting topics of policy and politics from a nonpartisan background for good and intelligent people. Because my so-called media assistant, Eric, refuses to buy me psychedelic mushrooms, even though he lives in Colorado, or to introduce me to his friends by saying, this is Heaton, he's definitely not a cop, as I have instructed him to say multiple times. So, if you give me money, I'll use it to pay him and for web hosting and something, I don't know, microphones, podcast stuff. Anyway, go to patreon.com slash Andrew Heaton to support the show and not buy me drugs. I am joined today by Sarah Rose Siskind, a very funny friend of mine. Uh, she is the founder and president of Hello Psycom, which is a company that you're smiling. Did I already bungle this? <laughs> president, I just got a promotion. I just got my. You're founder. welcome. I, you've been doing a bang up job, and I, I thought, you know, I, I, I'm going to take, I'm, I'm going to step back, and just be board of directors level. Wait, you. hold on. What's, what's your title at Hello Psycom? It's your company. <laughs> I. I haven't given myself a good title. It should be like Grand Wizard. Nope, that's a bad one. Why did I say no, that? No, I think that's great. Grand Wizard's great. It's time we resuscitated that title. No, no. I think Cyclops has a much better ring to yeah, it. Yeah, good idea. Hi, um, Cyclops. Yeah. No, um, I don't. I haven't given myself a good title. But Wait, I'm so you formed a whole company <laughs> and you've not come up with a title yet, even though you have employees? This is true, actually. I mean, we do call them all creatives, and I guess I could be like, the lead creative or like the- Oh my God. How many bean bags are in your company right now? How many ball pits do you have <laughs> amongst more- your creative, Sarah? <laughs> there are more bean bags than humans <laughs> and there are more animals than humans. It's pretty much just like a zoo. <laughs> Great. Okay. Got it. Good. Well, uh, the name of that company is Hello Psychob, mm-hmm. which uh, uh, is a company designed to help people working in the sciences be funny, specifically for the purposes of writing speeches. So if- uh, uh, Lord Lord Martin, who I think we're both actually friends with, the, the Astronomer Royal of the United Kingdom, needs a funny speech written. He would contact you and you would help him do that. He can kill it with uh, with he can kill his audience with comedy. We do more than just speeches, to be clear. Like uh, we do a bunch of weird stuff. Like we do, uh, you know, the classics, website copy, speech copy, article blog, blah, blah, blah. But we also do this like weird stuff where we help people building virtual characters and social robots um, and generative AI characters. We make them more interesting. So we have like a huge niche in the AI social robotics world. Okay. You got me. I will invest. I'm I'm down. (laughs) I I, I will wire you $1,000 later today and uh, we'll get into that. We aren't taking we aren't taking any investment money, but I will take some bribes if you want to be the lead lead creative. <laughs> Done. I'll do that. Then I've got a calling card when I go to my next science party. When you when you sign on, you get three beanbags. <laughs> Great. Okay. Excellent. Uh, all right. So, in addition to being a a beanbag czar and uh, a, a very funny, I don't know how to describe the science writing. Uh, talent. Uh, you are also a psychedelic comedian, which we're going to talk about today, meaning that you're a comedian that knows a lot about psychedelics and explains them to people through humor. And then as a backstory for anybody that is familiar with me, Andrew Heaton, who enjoyed Mostly Weekly, that was a joint enterprise of Sarah Rose Siskin and myself. Uh, Sarah was the head writer. I was on camera. So if you thought that was hilarious, 
at least 50% of the hilarity is Sarah Rose Siskind. And so you're getting, you're getting a, a tremendous amount of that with you. So I can vouch you're very, very funny. Thank you. Um, and that is, you need vouchers actually to prove yeah. that you're funny. Well, if, you get, if you're going to have your comedy license renewed, I mean, you've, you've got to have those vouchers. Um, I will say um, that uh, one of the episodes we did for Mostly Weekly, this was like before I really got interested in psychedelics and started uh, disappointing my parents. Uh, one of the early episodes that we did was Everyone You Love Did Drugs. Mm-hmm. And it was an episode about how like lots of famous people throughout history, like Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln, were all doing different kinds of drugs that are now illegal today. But at mm-hmm. the time would go by names like laudanum and you wouldn't think mm-hmm. was heroin because it sounds like laudanum. Yeah. Laudanum just sounds like an old timey thing you'd use to treat smallpox. But really, yeah. it's heroin with whiskey. Yeah. Something like, like that, right? Worse heroin because yeah. <laughs> it's cowboy heroin is what laudanum is. If you're going to do heroin in a stagecoach, you're drinking laudanum. Oh, wow. You could do like like commercials for laudanum. <laughs> you know, I travel by stagecoach a lot and I have gout. That's why I drink laudanum by the pint every single day. Laudanum. It's heroin for cowboys. Are you a woman who wants to take laudanum? Try laudanum light. It'll help you watch the waistline and watch you waste your life away. <laughs> uh, wait, real quick, because it's been a couple of years since we did that video. I think it's been three or four years. What, what was Churchill on? Churchill, uh, so there's classic alcohol, but then he was right. also, he was, he had this doctor who was like a Dr. Feelgood who would just prescribe him anything. And I think there was a time that he was on an amphetamine, some mm, stimulant, yeah. um, for, uh, for quite a while, I think towards the end of his life. And there, okay. that was a common one. There was, um, Ayn Rand was on something similar when she was writing mm. Atlas Shrugged. You know, mm. which kind of explains the volume of that book. Right. Um, it's definitely something somebody on Adderall would write. So, uh, on, on to the note of, of right. psychedelics. Uh, and can I, can I actually mention how outside of the episode we worked on, uh, feel, if you want, I'll take this out. You don't, we, mm-hmm. I, I'm very happy to remove what I'm about to say. Just let me know. But uh, we hadn't seen each other for a couple of years, and I was at Burning Man, and I'm riding mm-hmm. a bicycle. And all of a sudden, you, again, who I've not seen for two years and didn't know was going to be there, come out of nowhere and go, hey, Heaton. And I go, wow, Sarah, h- how are you? And like, you know, pretty good. And I'm like, I, I didn't know you were here. I would love to have coffee with you. Where are you staying? And you smiled and said, I have to go. I'm on too much LSD. And then just bend away. And I didn't see you for another year. And it was I'm like, all right, well, if you're going to be do like, I mean, it was, it was very polite and friendly. And then just like very full throated. Yes. I am on too much acid to do coffee with you right now. Goodbye. And then floated off of this blonde Mary Poppins ether into the, the dust. Uh, and so, uh, so you're not only aware of these things on a, a clinical level, but have in fact done several of them that we're going to talk about. Uh, yeah, that is my favorite introduction. Uh, yeah, to meet somebody in the middle of a desert where there's like 70,000 people around and just be super casual and just be like, hey, <laughs> I got to go. Bye. But nice seeing you. Um, yeah. No, I was coming off uh, also a long shift at the Zendo Project, which is a fantastic organization where you go and you sit with people um, who've taken too much of a substance who aren't having a good time. Mm-hmm. And you sit with them, you get trained how to do this and make sure that they, you know, frankly, come to a better state of consciousness. They're calm. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so I was leaving that shift and I was like, not going to go back to bed. Might as well. Can't beat them. Join them. (laughs) And I tried some acid. And uh, yeah, I was biking back home. 
saw you and was just kind of like went up there. You were like, I'd love to get coffee. I was like, I don't think I'm up for that, for that state of consciousness (laughs) and just had very good boundaries. Right. And I have to, I have to add this. It's also a bad sign when you invite people to coffee and having coffee with you is to them more difficult than doing three hits of acid. That is a bad sign. But that said, that's on me. That's something I, I need to read more Dale Carnegie. And, it, depends, uh, it depends on your relationship. For me, lots of shit is harder than three hits of acid. So, <laughs> yeah, don't, I wouldn't take it personally. I, I shan't. I shan't. So, well, on, on that note then, because we'll probably talk about LSD and psychedelics and maybe ketamine and some other things here. Um, the, the thing that's most interesting to me about it that I that I see from a policy perspective is it seems to me that there's a lot of indications that these have a good palliative effect for people that have tra- trauma or alternately potentially for alcoholism and other dependencies because of its ability to affect neuroplasticity. Before we get into that, which I think is really the, the meaty thing, and again, from a policy perspective, that to me is the most persuasive element to psychedelics. There's also a whole kind of culture surrounding them that it makes you more creative uh, and that, you know, Steve Jobs did it and and lots of different artists and things have done LSD and things like that. Um, has your experience been that you've been more creative having done psychedelics? Has it Has it had a boost on it? And if so, can you walk us through why that would be in terms of neuroplasticity? Oh boy, so many things to say. Well, specifically on the creativity issue, I would generally like advise people not to take psychedelics to be more creative because there's a whole, I, I kind of attribute this largely to the microdosing world where people um, will microdose a substance to try to be more creative so that they can, you know, be better at work or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's really like, you're, if not therapeutic, like your intentions should be a little bit more about um, consciousness exploration, because if you have too strong of an expectation of like, if I don't write this pilot by Monday, I'll be super upset. Like you may not have a very good tripping experience. Um, I will say that said, people uh, do experience um, very different kinds of thought patterns, which can unlock creativity. And the way that this works is that for most psychedelics, and I'm talking the classics here, so mushrooms, LSD, um, you know, just mescaline uh, for the more further afield people, uh, DMT for the Joe Rogan types. Um, the way that that works is that all of those classic psychedelics are tryptamines, which means that they uh, they have a molecule that looks a lot like serotonin, and it acts a lot like serotonin. Um, and what uh, it does in your brain from a anatomical perspective is it cr- increases cross hemispheric communication and different communication across uh, different parts of your brain. And this is why you get synesthesia. This is why you can like smell colors and taste sounds and whatnot. Um, but more importantly, cause like that's on the perceptual level, that's fantastic. But on a cognitive level, Um, You're also having um, different parts of your brain communicating so that, for example, you might have um, hypernesia where you can remember things extremely well, Um, not always, but sometimes. Um, And you can also just have different parts of your brain communicating, which can lead to insight. Like um, this is the way it works in therapy. You remember something bad that happened to you, but then you remembered, hey, wait a minute, like in that traffic accident, the second before I was hit, 
I turned the steering wheel of my car so that um, I wouldn't run into the car in front of me. Wow, like I did something to try to save a life and I did that instantaneously. And then you remember that thing and that helps you to, um, let's say, counteract the PTSD subsequent to a traumatic event. Um, however, that could also work with creativity where now you're turning, you're remembering important things or making novel connections. Um, I will give you one joke that I wrote while on acid, and you can be the judge of whether this uh, improved or didn't improve my creativity. Here it goes. All right. <clears throat> Do giraffes have Adam apple, Adam's apples? That's it. That's, That's pretty whole. good. I like that. That's good. It's kind of Mitch Hedberg. <laughs> it's like Mitch Hedberg. Good visual. He got hit in the side of the head and didn't didn't finish it. Like it's <laughs> it's not really done, but there is something weird there. So I I'm not like using psychedelics regularly to like write my material, but I do find that they they perhaps make me think in a different way. So I I've got a theory that the people that would most stand to benefit from psychedelics are also the people that are most apt to flip out and have a bad time. And the people mm -hmm. that probably don't need it also would be the easiest to roll with it. And the reason I say this is I think if, if you have a really rigid, just tightly wound personality type and worldview, it would probably be beneficial to you to see the world from a different perspective because you're not used to doing that. But the experience of having the world shift in terms of perception and cognition is going to be terrifying to you. Whereas if you have a much more fluid and plastic understanding of life and you are more you know, approaching things from different angles on a regular basis, your cognition somewhat fluid, it's going to be a lot easier for you to do psychedelics, but I don't know that they're going to have a windfall for you. I, I suspect that you're already kind of where you need to be in terms of, in terms of what they would do. So uh, this is just supposition on my part. I don't know. What do you think? I think that's a very um, understandable theory. I can see where you come from on that. There's just one major caveat, which is that um, healing really has to begin with the person wanting to heal and that also applies to recreational experiences where you're only going to have a good time. Like if you want to have a good time, you really manifest what kind of experience you'll have. And um, that's what is meant by the set in the phrase set and setting. It, it's a shortened version of mindset. So you're totally right. Like some of the people who are the most opposed to psychedelics stand the greatest to benefit from them. However, they really have to want to do it. Um, okay. like two things off of that one, it's one of the reasons why I always tell people who are like over 50, um, who will sometimes say like, I don't know, I, I think I might be too old to start. I'll be like, no, this is, I wish I'd waited till I was your age because they are so, there's such a bigger payoff when you're frankly older and you have more established patterns of thinking, this will be like, you know, like with a joke, you have to set expectations really strongly to upend them. Like your expectations are set, this will be a bigger payoff. So one, old age is um, actually helps, I think, the psychedelic experience. And then um, number two, like, yeah, people really have to want to try them. Like oftentimes yeah. people will ask me for help finding a ceremony or like finding a person. And like they, it's sort of like converting to Judaism where you have to ask the rabbi three times. Like uh -huh. they have to ask me a bunch because it's like, I'm not, I'm not going to just push drugs on you, you know, like, yeah. you know, I'll only set you up with like an underground therapist 
um, if I know that you have a super big commitment to heal. And I'm worried that I said this out loud because people will know this now. <laughs> <laughs> you just got you have to inflate your your Jewish uh, Jewish protocol. It has to be six times now. Okay. Yeah. That's oh, dude. Damn it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 no problem. Well, actually, then be- before we get into into the the palliative elements of this uh, that, that I that I think are strong about about trauma and about uh, you know alcoholism and so on and so forth, uh, I I do feel it, it's incumbent upon me to be responsible and say what are the risks to doing say LSD or ketamine or mushrooms, um, you know are, are there and and this is where I I am very happy to talk to somebody you like Sarah because. As you know, I am from 1990s Oklahoma, which is to say, I am from 1950s anywhere else. So, like, like I, I don't know, I don't know what's propaganda, what's not. Like, like, like on the one hand, I was told growing up that acid, you get flashbacks, it hides in your spine for decades, and all of a sudden you'll have an acid flashback and it burns holes through your brain. And I'm like, now I'm thinking ah, that might have just been stuff my teachers made up or that they yeah. heard and that they parroted. I don't know. But I'm sure that there are downsides that you should be aware of. So kind of like with, with psychedelics, can, can you – if you do too many mushrooms, do you go crazy? If you do too much LSD, do you, do you never come back? Yeah, one of my favorite um, mythologies about LSD is that you know people will think they can fly and jump off a tall building. But um, Bill Hicks has this really great line where he's like, if you really thought you could fly, why do you need to start at the top <laughs> of a building? <laughs> That's a great point. I know. Be in a field, right? Wouldn't anybody a field where you could you could get a good running start and and, and have more? Yeah, yeah that's touche, touche, Bill Hicks. Thank you, Bill, Bill Hicks. Anyway, yeah, that whole mythology was started by a really tragic case where this guy Art Linkletter's daughter committed suicide, and in his grief, he attributed it to like, oh, she must have been on LSD, which is frankly mm-hmm. like a thing that happens a lot because people with mental health issues are desperate. They try all different types of healing. And sometimes that includes psychedelics. Uh, psychedelics are not a panacea, especially without good therapy. And so sometimes those people end up killing themselves or hurting other people. And so, of course, like people will make that association. They did it because of the psychedelic, when in fact the correlation is a lot um, uh, less direct. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that only desperate people try psychedelics is because they are illegal and they are not regulated. So, you know, people with extremely high, um, you know, risk tolerances um, are the people attracted to taking them. But getting back to your original question, I mean, that does partially answer your question about what are the risks. Um, There are a number of them and they kind of vary across the different um, psychedelics. So if we take a broad view of psychedelics and include MDMA, there are some possible issues with um, heart um, uh, heart diagnoses that could, for example, preclude you from academic studies using MDMA since it is a stimulant. So like, like th- th- theoretically, if I've got a heart palpitation or I've got high blood pressure or something, I could get a heart attack by virtue of being overstimulated or maybe if I do have a really bad trip or something, I, I but, but not in the sense that it's going to actually break my brain, but that there could be a secondary effect on the heart. I think that's like overstating it a little bit. I tried to squirrelily get, get out of it by saying you'll be precluded from studies because the studies are like really rigorous. They don't want to fuck anything up. Um, there hasn't been like, there's been a little bit of data indicating that um, having heart issues could incline you towards um, 
either a murmur or an episode, um, but I would have to look into it more. Okay. It's just something to be cognizant of. Maybe people take like an extra statin or something like that. Um, I would definitely research that. Um, for the more psychological risks, um, there's been a fair amount of data about anybody with predisposition towards mania or any kind of psychosis that um, LSD, any of the classic psychedelics could trigger. Now, um, I actually was talking with Rick Doblin, the head of MAPS, the major psychedelic pharmaceutical research company, who said he wants to actually do a study to see if psychedelics can help people with schizophrenia, which is, he's such a beautiful man because that's such a risky move. And like the only people it will benefit would be the patients themselves. Like it's nothing but a risk for MAPS. And he really is so committed to just helping people because that is such a risky patient population. However, he thinks that it could be helpful. So, you know, there's also, it's possible that it's the reverse, that it could help these people. However, I have seen and have um, seen some data, I have seen personally anecdotally, but also seen some data that it can induce manic episodes. One of the counter arguments is that like, those manic episodes might be induced anyway um, by other, uh, you know, phenomenon and that this will simply expedite that process and perhaps even you can be on the lookout afterwards. I don't know if that's realistic to how people take this stuff, but um, there's, I guess I just mean to say there's like some evidence about the risks in, include psychosis and mania and heart issues but I would research them because there's lots of ongoing research that's happening monthly. Um, and there's lots of counter uh, data to like make everything kind of uncertain. But those okay. are the three things to watch out for. So th those are big things. So like th then the idea of you do acid and you're going to get acid flashbacks 20 years from now or, or turn into a, a burnt out, you know, mumbling hippie, that is unlikely. Uh, the flashback thing is anecdotal. There hasn't been good widespread data on it. Um, I have met people who were extremely skeptical who had one, but they had it from DMT. Um, and I know a lot of people who had it. I know one person who had it on LSD, but actually kind of enjoyed the flashback because... Yeah, there's there's Norm, Norm MacDonald, Peace Be Upon Him, had, I think in his mm -hmm. last stand-up special, he talks about how like, if you do acid... You, you get a flashback like 20 years later for free. Yeah. You acid once, but then you get it again. And, and, like, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Exactly. You get it's sort of like uh, the opposite of a trailer. You know, you get a little throwback. <laughs> you, you get, we call it a callback in the biz. Sarah and I work in uh, an acid callback. Uh, but are you very, like, I guess to, to get into the, um, the palliative elements of this, mm -hmm. it's my understanding that one of the, um, promising parts of psychedelics are that uh, they they are either subduing existent neural connections or potentially creating new neural connections, which means that if you've got a habitual behavior that's been reinforced again and again, like addiction, that it might be able to uh, alleviate that or potentially rewire it. But the, the follow-up I would have on that is, okay, if, if I take acid and I think about alcohol and I no longer crave alcohol, does that also mean I might not like chocolate anymore or I might suddenly love steak? Like, like are, are you going to form new, new pathways that you didn't want or lose old pathways you liked? 
Okay, so to answer the first part about how it works, um, so one common metaphor neuroscientists use is that the brain is like a hillside of snow and that a sled going down it forms certain grooves and then mm -hmm. as subsequent sleds come down, they'll tend to prefer a track. And this is the um, neural rigidity model. Um, things can become far too rigid, which is uh, a s sort of um, <clears throat> metaphor for PTSD. So you you hear a loud bang and you immediately assume danger. So that uh, the first time you heard it, it was danger, but subsequent times it's a car backfiring. All of a sudden you're cowering under a desk and you really don't want to get out. So that is a, a case of a brain making too strong of an association. Um, the basic mechanism by which psychedelics works is they increase neuroplasticity, which means that you have a critical window where your brain can now rewire that connection. So what oftentimes the trauma therapist will do is they'll have you retell the story because every type of PTSD therapy does rely on the same mechanism, which is retelling the story of what happened. However, um, that's extremely difficult when people are sober because as you can imagine it is literally traumatic for them which is why these studies have poor efficacy rates because people just don't complete the training when they complete the training it's it's pretty good however with mdma it increased the amount of people who actually go through the trainings um, because they're in this acute period where when they tell the story they, um, by being on MDMA, they have lower cerebral blood flow to the amygdala, which is the part of your brain associated with fight or flight. So right. they feel less of like a maybe adrenaline reaction, oh, less discomfort. Okay. Now they can talk about it. But then MDMA is twofold because it's part um, amphetamine, which is what is actually like decreasing the blood flow to the amygdala. And then it's part psychedelic, which is working on um, the same receptor that the other psychedelics worked on, work on, which means that there's more communication in the brain. So now you have less fear when you're talking about the traumatic story and you're able to make new connections. So this time, when you talk about the bomb going off, you're able to forgive yourself for not being able to save everybody in that village or whatever it was that happened in the moment and you make a new connection. And the next time you hear a bang, you're actually able to think of that self-forgiveness. That's a very rudimentary okay. model of how the, the new connections get made. There was something else you asked though. Well, I, I guess yeah. The, the other bit would be: are are you going to accidentally create new oh. mental pathways, or alternately lose ones that you liked? Yeah, that's a fun question. Um, so yeah, I mean, like people use mushrooms for smoking cessation, like to quit smoking, and that has a like, really good effic efficacy rate. So does you know ketamine for addiction, and so does LSD actually for alcoholism. Yeah, didn't uh, the founder of AA like attribute LSD significantly to his uh, his recovery? But then everybody in AA talked him out of talking about it because they're like, well, we can't be associated with this. But he was kind of gung ho. Am I right in that? So close. Um, like Bill W. At it's not like, like I made a goddamn video about it four years ago <laughs> where I spoke into a camera, but it was four years ago. Bill W. towards the end of his life was like, we need to look into LSD okay. uh, for helping addicts. Um, and then this is didn't happen, but in my head, one of his assistants just like slowly put a pillow over his head as he was saying that <laughs> because they they don't talk about it. They hate that because they're into like sobriety. And, right, right, yeah. you know, I have empathy for like former addicts, like 
it's hard to explain. It's very counterintuitive to say another mind altering substance. We promise this one's okay. uh, We'll get you out of your addiction. Very counterintuitive, but it really does. It helps you because oftentimes what, what happens with addictions is it's not just the alcohol. The alcohol means something to you. It's why people drink, even though they're vomiting and it's painful is because now that the alcohol represents something more. And so you're able to change those associations. However, yes, it is true. You can stop liking stuff. I once saw my friend eating chicken while on mushrooms and she's looking at it and eating it slowly and thinking, saying like, this was alive once. This was alive once. This had hopes and dreams. It was probably a she and just like went on, but still ate the whole thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then after that experience, never ate meat again. So, really? yeah, she kind of like, I think she just kind of ate it because it was habit, but got her, whipped herself into a feeling of disgust. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people do become um, vegetarians or vegans, um, after psychedelic experiences because they make new empathetic connections. Um, so yeah, it is, it is possible to follow up. Is it, is it apt to alter your personality, uh, by, by which I mean, not like, so that seems to be like you've enhanced empathy that creates a new, new moral paradigm that you switch into that, that to me is not frightening, but like, let's say my sense of humor went away. Uh, or I, I no longer like Star Trek, but I love football or something like that. Like that, like that kind of frightens me that I could, I could basically become a different person, not a better person, just a different person. That latitudinal shift would be, would be scary to me. Uh, great question. It's not permanent, but there is a thing called ego dissolution where your personality. That's great. Um, it can be very frightening for people, uh, who are like, what am I without my sense of humor and my smoking jacket? Uh, no, you know, those people. Is. I'm already scared. Can you see my body language? <laughs> I know. I'm falling my arms. So like, it can't I have nothing, Sarah. I just have jokes and wardrobes. <laughs> yeah. So it can be pretty jarring for some people, ego dissolution where like, you know, I've had this before where like I felt, um, less intelligent. And I was like, who the fuck am I without a sense of intelligence? Like, oh my God, I'm fucked. Not just from a, you know, I can't go to work sense, but from a like, who am I? Um, So it can be really jarring. However, it is these breaks in your narrative of who you are, that you're able to do really good work about who you can be. Now, I know that sounds like a poster I would hang in my office, like with a pictures of mountains or something, but it is important to, to realize this, that like we have a story about who we are and that is one of the biggest impediments to behavior change. I couldn't okay. yeah. possibly uh, ha- own a cat. I am a dog person. You know, I couldn't possibly fall in love with this person. I have trust issues. So we tell ourselves these narratives and sometimes it takes a really jarring moment of ego dissolution um, to get out of those habits. I will say, however, um, in recent years, there's been a lot of like, uh, how do I put this diplomatically men? Um, (laughs) how dare you? (laughs) Where are we going with this? Um, listen, I'm a big fan of men. Love what you've done with civilization. Um, just like bang and drop. Love. (laughs) Uh, also, 
Doritos. Currency, I think we probably got that under our belt. There's some yeah. other stuff too. I don't, I'm going to have to check the man. Love, body hair. Great. Anyway, yeah. love it all. Um, however, I have some notes. Um, okay. what, <laughs> there've been some dudes lately. I feel um, so under attack right now. How dare you? <laughs> uh, please continue. <laughs> No, it's just like some guys when they take psychedelics, they get really excited about ego dissolution and they uh, they start talking about psychedelics like people talk about alcohol where it's kind of like, I did so much DMT, my brain exploded, my face uh, right. melted, I didn't know a, where I was. Almost like and a they, macho, look how much I can do thing. Yeah, and it's so ironic yeah. because they like the irony is this. They're talking about how little their ego was to boost their ego. <laughs> And I, the reason I bring up like this sort of like a questionable, maybe unhealthy paradigm is because for some people taking psychedelics, they actually don't, their work, they don't need, um, they don't need ego dissolution. They need a better sense of self. These are people who are very self-conscious, maybe people who like have really bad self-hate. Like, I mean, self-hatred, you could still use ego dissolution, but like there are some people who don't have a, even a very good sense of self. Um, and for those people, you don't want to fucking blast them off their asses with DMT, um, big hits or whatever. So there's a big caveat to the whole ego dissolution thing. Okay. Um, real quick, can I give a, a, I think what would be a positive example of this in a very, very minor capacity. So full disclosure listeners, I've done mushrooms twice. It was both instances, an extremely positive experience that I, I thought was great and which I hope to repeat in the future. Uh, and um, the the first time I did it, there was a moment at the conclusion of, of the experience where I was at a lake and was looking out mm-hmm. across the lake towards this, because everything's gorgeous, this beautiful green field and there's a family playing there. They're doing a picnic and I'm with my friend and it's sunny out. And I had this moment where I thought, you know, I'm going to die eventually, but other people are still going to be in that lovely green field. There's other people that are going to be on the stage and enjoying life. And as long as somebody's here to enjoy life, I'm not that bothered if I'm here or not. And uh, I I came out of that experience and I'm still scared of death and everything, but I'm like 5% less scared of death than I used to be. And I, I think it's because it kind of allowed me to just not feel that I was that important for a little bit and be able to take a positive, uh, positive assessment out of that. I could see you doing another radio commercial for mushrooms about being 5% less afraid. Guaranteed, 5% less afraid. Are you frightened of death? We can guarantee 5% uh, less worry about death. Uh, yeah. Right, so can I, so can I give a, 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 an example of, of palate, uh, what, what might be palliative psychedelics? I want to know if this would work or not. And I'm going to give the weakest, most tiny violin going type thing of my life. So everybody prepare to roll your eyes that I would even bring this up, but I'm doing it on behalf of all the people that aren't here that probably have really dark stuff that they may not want to say. Okay. So for example, uh, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you, Sarah, I really don't like being hot and sweaty. I'm bothered by humidity and heat. Only every time we hang out. Every time we hang out. We should go to a sweat lodge the next time we hang out. (laughs) Well, okay. And see, this is, this is the odd thing is I really like sweat rooms. I like, I like going into a sweat room, but I hate, just despise feeling hot and sweaty and that feeling of soggy clothing. And I've thought a lot about this. Mm. And when I was maybe 12, 
I had really bad heat stroke. Like I had to be hospitalized. They were about to medevac me. Oh my Um, God. And so, which happened by the way, because I was at Boy Scout camp and Mm -hmm. um, you have to explain why I'm supposed to do stuff to me. You can't just tell me to do a thing. You have to explain it. So when the adults are like, drink lots of Kool-Aid, I'm like, no, I'm just going to drink water because water's healthier. Like no one explained what electrolytes were to Um, me. So I sweat out all of the electrolytes in my system and then collapsed and vomited and and, and was about to go to the hospital and all these different things. And and, and I'm now thinking as an adult, that might inform why I'm so bothered by feeling sweaty and hot is that there's some part of my brain affected by acknowledged minor trauma, but nonetheless, some amount of trauma that makes it go into flight or fight mode. Uh, and so I wonder if, um, theoretically, if I were to see a therapist, which I should probably do regardless, but but co- accompany that with something like a psychedelic and work through that, if, if that would perhaps lessen that fight or flight response. Because again, it doesn't happen when I'm in a sweat room. I thought your big sort of breakthrough moment was going to be always drink the Kool-Aid. Like <laughs> no matter what's in it, always drink the Kool-Aid. That's- always drink the Kool-Aid. Yes. A good, a, a good bumper sticker to live by. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, frankly, it sounds like you've done a lot of the work there. Um, I think the biggest thing is just like, um, is, you know, is your aversion to the heat and the sweatiness, like, um, that kind of like big of an obstacle in your life. Um, and if it is like, perhaps it's more than just the physical might be something to think about because psychedelics, one of the things people have, um, on mass realized through the assistance of psychedelics is the incredible, um, connection between mind and body. So, um, alongside the psychedelic movement, there've been all of these beautiful, wonderful ancillary movements. And one of them has to do with body work. Not, you know, the words sound kind of woo-woo. I know it sounds like, I don't know, I have a bunch of Tibetan flags hanging behind me. But like Mm -hmm. um, body work is a really great concept, which is just that you can hold trauma in your body. Um, And so perhaps that experience uh, that you had of being really hot and sweaty is kind of like an experience that's still held within your nervous system because our bodies are kind of more ancient than our brains are. Like we we have certain parts of our limbic system that are just like like millions of years old and then parts of our cerebrum, like the the gray matter of our brain, which are not as old. Um, And so and we can be absent from those parts. So one of the great things about psychedelics is people can feel really tapped into their own bodies and you can locate where in yourself do you feel the discomfort um, and you can uh, you can sort of address that. Like I have, um, I, for this exact example, I have a real fear of the cold, like the exact opposite. Maybe this is why we get along so well. But like I freak out when I get- but We only talk twice a year during autumn and spring. Like Norse gods. Like Nor, actually, yeah, just like Norse gods. Anyway, um, so like for me, you know, psychedelics has have helped me um, with some breathing exercises, which help me feel less anxious when you know I'm in New York and it's like really freezing and I'm trying not to go numb immediately. Um, so yeah, they can help with with body work, and that might be the route to the medical care you were talking about. Hmm. Well, I, I know we've got to wrap up here in a moment. Um, so before we get to to plugging your various projects, do you have any final words that you want to convey to the audience in terms of things that they should be excited about in the future, about psychedelics in general, about any warnings or suggestions, anything like that? Well, I think like two notes to end on, or like one, two recaps are like, 
always drink the Kool-Aid and uh-huh. do more meth. Uh-huh. Like, yes, exactly. Um, That's what I got out of this episode. Yeah. I will actually, I will make uh, one point, um, which I meant to make at the beginning. Um, there are tremendous medical benefits to psychedelics that we've talked about, but one of the things that, um, you know, you and I share, Heaton, is a love of freedom and liberty. And so, you know. Thank you for saying those words in my native language. I appreciate that. <laughs> I just imagine, you know, the two of us in our natural setting behind the back of a pickup truck, both wearing American flag bikinis and shotguns. Yep, as I do. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, you know, like even if there weren't uh, hugely medicinal benefits to this stuff, like I'm a big adherent to cognitive liberty where like you should be able to do what you want with your brain. And like there's a really great sort of syllogism, which is like, you know, choosing what – chemicals you put in your brain can affect how you think and how you think affects what you say. And we have freedom of speech. So it really is like a constitutional liberty that we should be able to change our minds how we want. Um, And so that applies not just to psychedelics, but to all other drugs, which can also be medicinal if used in an informed way, whether it's cocaine or heroin, which is the same as morphine or Adderall, which is the same as meth. Um, or, uh, or ketamine, which is now like available in New York on every city block, (laughs) which is crazy anyway, which sadly, I don't know a lot about ketamine, but perhaps I'll talk to you another time about that. Uh, but it's always a pleasure to talk to you during the brief window of period where the temperature is clement to both of us and we're able to communicate (laughs) by zoom. Uh, so thank you for coming on. You've done multiple shows in New York. You just had a sold out show in New York city. On, on comedy and psychedelics. Uh, I don't live in New York, so I've not been able to go to any of the shows, but I assume that these are, they're explaining things in a very funny way about, about psychedelics, and that's mm-hmm. kind of the crux of them. I have this long-running show called Drug Test. It's at a, a theater called Caveat Theater in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, but we also live stream shows. And every month is a new drug, and I usually take that drug. So come watch me do stupid shit on a drug. <laughs> Wait, so are you are you on a drug during the show? I'm on uh, – oh, I thought you were going to say right now. And I was going to be like, I'm high on Heaton right now, Heaton. <laughs> oh, man. That's a steep come down too. Uh, <laughs> as, I, as I am told, you don't want Heaton withdrawal. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Be, be careful on that. Wonderful. Well, uh, and then, uh, and then for, for people just to stay uh, in contact with you, is Twitter the best way? Is the website the best way? What would you, what would you direct people to? Um, in the words of Ram Dass, follow me on Twitter. Uh, my name is Sarah Rose Siskin. You could probably find me uh, doing the interwebs thing. So yeah, I think it's Sr Siskin is my is my handle. Great, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am joined by Ayla. She is a public intellectual. She's very active on Twitter. Delightful to follow on Twitter. A crypto dabbler and a OnlyFans. Model person, person, and yeah. so has lots of different things that she's up to. And nice to see you again, Ayla. It's good to see you too. It's good. It's been a while since since I said hello to you. Yeah, we so we we were hanging out with Alice Vaughn talking about NFTs and got along real well. And I was super charming and likable, and we yeah. just had a great time. Remember? Yeah, I, I, I can never get that voice. <laughs> good. All right. Good. I'll take that. So I I wanted to talk to you today. I so somebody mentioned you, and I was like, oh, I know her. And, and he went, did you know she did LSD every day for a year? 
And I went, weirdly enough, that didn't come up. We mostly talked about NFTs in the, the conversation that I squandered with Ayla. Had I known that she'd done LSD every day for a year, I would have talked to her about that. Uh, now, I've, I've since read through your, your, uh, your article about it, so I'm a little bit familiar with it. I know it wasn't quite a year, but, but am, am I right in thinking you basically dropped acid every day for about a year, like 10 months straight or something like that? I like how like the legend it just like grows with time. It was actually roughly about once a week. Um, on average. Oh, okay. So not every day. It's hard. It would be okay. expensive to take acid every day for a year because uh -huh. if you want to do the second day and get the same amount of intensity, you have to double the amount that you take. So I would have okay. very, very high doses very fast. I did not have that kind of money. Uh, All right. So what, what, okay. But I, I have to say, I'm still kind of, uh, in awe of the sheer amount of LSD you dropped doing once a week for a year, that's still like, like on a scale of dropping acid, I would still put that towards heavy user, even if it's not on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, it's so, pretty unusual. It, it, Most people don't like eating acid that much. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So first of all, how did you get into that? Was this like a personal experiment where you're like, you know, I really want to see what happens or you just kind of got into the habit or you had like somebody gave you a big batch of it at Christmas and you were like, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and run through it. <laughs> Christmas acid, like going through chocolate. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we're, 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 we're Lutherans. So, you know, that's how it is. <laughs> uh, no, I, I ate LSD at the party. This was my first real drug. I had like before that had alcohol and that was it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, very straight laced. And then one day at a party, somebody was like, you want to try this drug? And you're like, you know what? I'm going to be a person who tries a drug. So I tried LSD. It was terrible. Um, really awful experience. But uh, afterwards, I was like, I feel like I did something wrong. Like some way I was relating to the acid was like, I, I think I know what I did wrong. So I did it again and I didn't make the same mistake and it was great. And so I just kept, take, okay. kept taking it. Uh, mostly just like, oh, that was great. Let's do it again. And then I would like, I did a couple times. I remember at some point I had a conversation with my friend of mine who was more experienced with, with drugs. And I was like, is it a problem? Like, what should I do if I'm, if I like, can you get a date? Is this bad for me? Like, should I be concerned about how much I want to do acid? And she was like, I don't know if you, if it feels good to you, just do it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I, I did it as much as I wanted, which turned out to be roughly once a week for about 10 months. And I didn't really okay. know that that was an unusual thing until later. Hmm. What, what was the thing that made it negative the first time that made it positive in subsequent times? Oh, I was really trying to hold on to my own mind. Because, okay. I, I mean, for those of listening who have done acid, you probably know very well, it just like rips the control out of you. Like you try and fight it, but then you realize the thing that you're trying to fight it with is in itself susceptible to the LSD. And you're like, fuck, I got to find a new platform from which to fight this thing. So you okay. find a new platform. You're like, okay, here, this is where I am. And I'm like observing the drug over there. Like I'm the unaffected part and that's the affected part. And slowly you realize this new platform you found is in itself affected. And you're like, fuck. And then you just like run and find a new platform, rinse and repeat. And that was my first time doing LSD. Not very fun. Well, see, th this kind of backs up my theory. My theory is that psychedelics are most useful to people that are probably the most rigid, but they're also the most likely to flip out. And the people that are already really plastic, I don't know if they're going to get a lot from it. Did, did that square with, with your, I mean, cl clearly you, you got into it if you were doing it once a week, but kind of like it became positive once you were able to let go of it. Yeah. I'm not really sure. Right. So, but it also depends on what you mean by flip out. Like, what do you mean by flip out? Like have out a bad trip, like, like be, be scared, be frightened. Yeah. I don't know. I really don't know. Like, uh, Maybe people who are more neurotic tend to have worse times, uh, mm. like more prone to worry. And I'm not very neurotic, so that's probably okay. why I did had such a good time. But I, I'm not sure. So I, I have done some surveys on looping, which I consider to be mm. like correlated with freaking out, or it would be my guess. What um, is looping? Like like 
when you, uh, your like time resets for you over and over okay. again. Usually higher doses, you have shorter periods of time. Um, very, very high doses, it can get down to like three seconds. Uh, excuse me. Um, and, and so that, and like, that seems very non-productive. Or also like belief construction, where you take the drug and then you start to believe things about the world um, that are not true while you're tripping. And that seems to not be useful either. So I have measured belief construction and looping. And okay. none of those things had any correlation to anything I would have expected. Like I checked a bunch of things, like how religious are you? Like, how do, can mm. you solve this puzzle? Uh, how worried are you? And like, not I, I didn't find any, it doesn't mean there isn't any. It just means that like so far I feel like I don't have, I've looked into it, I don't have a good theory at all. Wait, so uh, I want to make sure I got these terms right. The, the, the looping and the the false beliefs. L looping is where like your brain resets while, while you're doing it, where you forget what you were doing? Yeah, somewhat. Yeah, looping is when you forget. And some people like do have progressions through the loops. Like you'll very slowly, you know, develop a plot line or like understand what's going on. But usually like the majority of your experience sort of resets. Okay. And you kind of know you're looping a little bit. You're like, fuck, like I'm back again. Um, and then it goes over and over. Like I tripped that one guy who was convinced there was a cut in his hand. And he would like ask me, like, is, is my hand bleeding? And I'd be like, no, your hand's fine. And then like, every 30 seconds, he'd be like, fuck, is my hand bleeding? Like, I'd be like, no, <laughs> this went on and on. Yeah. Well, and is that the false belief thing where where you, you just there's some construct of reality that's just completely wrong? Like, I, I believe there's a cat in the closet or I, I like what what kind of experiences did you have in terms of false beliefs? Uh, I didn't really have any. I, I do make like a subtle distinction in false beliefs. So like there's a confusion because, you know, LSE really fucks up your like like interpretations of what's going on. As you probably know, somebody says something and you're like, wow, there's 10 different ways I can interpret that. I have no idea. Or like your, your brain is also doing this on other levels. So when you get audio input, uh, your brain is like, I, there's like a billion ways I can interpret this. What did somebody say something when it's like a car going by? So there's like that kind of like quote unquote false belief, which I don't consider to be like a big deal. Okay. Um, it's just like your brain, like kind of trying to make sense of things and then like adjusting once, uh, apologies for those watching the video, I just worked out and so I'm covered in sweat. Um, but yeah, yeah. To, to, uh, so to, to, for, any, for anybody listening to the podcast, I'm going to probably start putting this on YouTube as well. And so, uh, Ayla just got back from the gym and is, uh, not like she, she's in workout clothing and actively doing her makeup while, while doing this. So there's lots <laughs> of levels happening presently. <laughs> it was actually the Oculus. Uh, oh, really? One step down from the gym. Yeah. Nice. But uh, okay. Wait. So, all right. The the, the big question I want to know is, did it did it screw you up? Because like me me being a product of the '90s, uh, you know, drugs are bad. Acid causes flashbacks. It literally burns a hole in your brain. Um, were, were there were there negative externalities? Are there any issues that you're still dealing with? Are there have you met people that have gone nuts from it? I have met people who have gone nuts, and it appeared to be triggered by the LSD. Uh, I suspect they would have gone nuts anyway. Okay. This is the prevailing theory, as far as I can tell. Like, it tends to be like a very intense event, and very intense events can trigger psychosis in people. Um, so there is that. I, I, as far as I know, I have not gone psychotic, uh -huh. um, and I have not developed any false beliefs. Uh, that part is a little bit different. Most people I've met, like, it does seem to increase susceptibility to false beliefs in general, uh, which is why now... When I recommend people take LC, I recommend taking a very small amount mm -hmm. and then checking with you to see if your beliefs are now something that you endorse or like would have endorsed from before. Um, and, and there are like subtle distinctions here, right? Because like sometimes LSD does change your mind in such a way that makes your life much better. Like it can make people, you know, lose a damaging religion because they're like, wait, compassion is a thing, right? So I'm not saying that like all of mind changes are inherently bad, um, 
but there is a way where sometimes your mind changes to things that like are very not plausible, like uh, like paranoid, like schizophrenia type Got things. It. Okay. Uh, I think this is pretty rare, but it is. Uh, I would just recommend starting slow. It can't hurt. When, when you say starting slow, um, like you're talking about doing micro dosing or doing a hit, like how I assume you were doing more over the course of your your year, just because you were probably building up some kind of tolerance to it. Like what what is a normal like is a hit of acid normal for most people, but like you can go up to three kind of what, what what are the parameters? Uh, a hit of acid is usually around 100 micrograms, but it can be as low as 50 or I've seen as high as like uh, 250. Which would be um, enough to make an elephant time, fly, right? Like if you gave 250, like if, <laughs> yeah. if, if 100 milligrams is the is, is the standard. Micrograms, micro, Excuse me. Yeah. Milligrams would burn a, a hole through the time-space continuum. Micrograms, <laughs> 100 is one hit. So like 250 to 500 would be like just ego death level intensity. Mm-hmm. And, and about where, yeah, and to be fair, like, ego death isn't guaranteed on dose, but it is more likely at higher doses. And where, where did you start at? Where did you end up at? Well, I, my first dose was the bad one. It was probably like 120 in hindsight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, like I said, I, I tripped on average once a week, which means sometimes I tripped closer t- together, mm-hmm. and I would increase the dose in that case, like a, a, like a proportionate amount. And then other times I would just like wait two weeks to reset. Okay. So fully reset. So I never actually like built up a real tolerance okay. to LSD, uh, but there was some sort of psychological tolerance. And then I got like more used to it. Um, and by the, I think my highest dose was 600 micrograms. Okay. What happened on that time? I, I laid down in bed and I decided to do the trip with no music, um, no people, just myself with my eyes closed. Uh-huh. Uh, it's really hard to describe. It was really lovely. I, I I couldn't see in front of me when I opened my eyes. It was just like I was spiraling through space. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know my name. It was really nice. Okay, so, um, so it's hard to describe in depth. Many people would describe or would, would interpret that as terrifying uh, of of being blinded and flying through space and not knowing your identity. Why why did you why why do you suppose that would be positive in your experience? Was it just that you were already used to it, so you weren't you weren't um, freaked out by having that much of an aberration in reality, or is it something endemic to your personality? Yeah, I, I suspect it's a couple of things. Like one, I, I practice. Two, like practicing is great. If you this is like the working up thing. Like take fifty micrograms a couple of times, then do seventy five, and then work your way up. And I worked my way up like like irresponsibly fast. Um, I do not recommend this for others. Uh, so that that's one. Two, I think I just have like a, a intense personality, or maybe not intense, but something that I can handle intensity. Mm-hmm. Like I tend to not be easily traumatized. I tend to be like pretty mentally resilient. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is through no virtue of my own. I think this is just genetics. Um, so, so for me, I think I was like uniquely suited to the intensity of LSD. Like it, it's as, it's fucking intense. Like, as you probably know, it's like, you're like shocked at how intense it can be. Cause like no, in normal life, your brain sort of like twists itself to, to handle things uh-huh. in a way that like downgrades the intensity. Like you rationalize it away or you sort of like ignore it. Um, you don't operate at like maximum intensity all the time. We get like tiny peaks of it. Um, but with LSD, it's just like, oh, that intensity button in your brain, we're going to like just stand on that for eight hours. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and it's like, how can a how can a human soul handle this is, is the big question. Can, can you attempt to describe what an acid trip is like to somebody that's never tried psychedelics before? Um, uh, it's something like it's going to be fully inadequate. It's inadequate in the way that like 
you can't explain what it's like to be an adult when you're a child or what it's like to be a child when you're an adult mm -hmm. in the sense that like so many aspects of your mental cognition are changed in a way that you can't predict from the outside because it's so normal. Like right now, there's so much like tiny little experience happening in our brains that we're, we don't understand. We're not aware of because they've been stable our entire lives. Uh, it's, it's part of the background. It's the wallpaper. It's like the air we breathe. Mm -hmm. And so trying to be like, okay, the air you breathe, there's like, there's other stuff going on in your cognition and trying to like draw your attention to that is like very difficult to do from this state, sure. like from the non-tripping sure. state. And like with, with LSD, it's like, it's like, oh shit, there's this other stuff in my brain that I didn't know could be altered. Uh, it's like a really big facet of it. Uh, so I'm kind of describing it from a meta level, like less, of, less of an object level. Also, is it okay that I'm brushing my hair? I don't know if you can hear it or if it's annoying. No, I think you're fine. Uh, it's it's. Uh, I, okay. I'm not able to hear the hair brushing, uh, so so it, sh it should interfere with the audio right. too much. Uh, I think I, I think you're right about that. I gave you kind of an impossible task of attempting to describe it to people. Um, I think like I could kind of somebody that's not smoked marijuana but's been drunk. I could be like, you know, it's kind of similar. Like you're, it's a little bit mellow. It's it's qualitatively a little different, but you're mm -hmm. in the same ballpark. But I feel like like psychedelics uh, are just. I, I can't relate it to you via coffee or relate it to you via beer. It's just, there's, there's something else entirely. Yeah. It's on a different track. Yep. Exactly. Did, did you have, um, w was this something that you were doing because you wanted to induce an epiphanal state? Is it something that you wanted to do to expand your mind? Is it, was it purely recreational? What, what, what kept you going? Honestly, I, so in hindsight, I'm incredibly glad that I didn't have exposure to spiritual culture. Like, people talking about doing, like, I'm glad I didn't know communities that were very psychedelically influenced. Like I had some friends who were doing it, but they were sort of like party type vibe. Like there wasn't a lot of discussion about like enlightenment or, you know, like solving childhood trauma. Like we were very basic. And I think that was incredibly good for me because I didn't come into it with expectations or preconceptions. I didn't come into it You didn't have bullet like points of like that, that conversation you had with your uncle that hurt your feelings that you were trying to work through or whether or not you think aliens <laughs> exist. You were just going in carte blanche. Right. And I think this is the problem with a lot of people. Like they go into LSD like expecting some sort of particular result and that expectation itself sort of interrupts the processing of whatever mm. is good for them to process. Mm. Um, so for me, I think this is part of why it was very effective in that like I just didn't, I just knew that I ate LSD and I felt like I understood myself more. Mm. And I was like, fuck, that's a great feeling. Like I, I feel like I'm like learning uh, and I was, I love learning because I'm, 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 my curiosity thing is like might be turned up a little too high uh, and, and acid really hit the spot. Okay. Uh, the learn, the things I learned are hard to communicate, but I, I do even now, like, uh, like nine, eight years later, find them to be very valuable. So were they, when you say you were learning things about yourself, do you mean in terms of like how, how you work cognitively or like facets of your personality that you, you hitherto were not able to articulate? Like what kind of stuff was it you were learning through it? Um, also difficult to explain, right? Because like the thing, if it was something that was accessible mentally, normally I would have done it already, or at least it wouldn't have been so strange and new to me. Like it would have been like, oh, I feel like kind of equivalent to reading a good book, right? Like, oh, there's information that sort of maps onto things I already understand about the world. And this is like a new way of doing it. Um, and that's like, that hits like some amount of curiosity, but the way that LSD was working for me was like uh, pulling out like completely new insights from things I'd never even considered before. Uh, and that like just stroked the curiosity thing just really, really did well. Um, but the stuff I learned was like, 
like a lot of meditation type stuff. Like the people talk about when they talk about meditating very heavily, mm-hmm. like, like examining the nature of what it is to be me in this moment, like examining the nature of like the sensation of like time passing in your experience and like, where does it go? Like the, the feeling of, you know, attachment or love, like, what is that? Uh, what does it mean to, to want something? Like, what does it mean for me to want? What does it mean for me to hate? Uh, just, and, and this, like, it's in a very sensory way, right? Like when you think about those questions, you think, oh, I'm going to like do insight and then maybe say some words that are like, wow, that's really profound. But like the, the insights in acid are very wordless because they feel like sensations. It's like there's something invisible in you that like shifts in the relationship to hate or love. And then suddenly you're different and you can't say why. Hmm. Okay. That is fascinating. It, I, I take it, I mean, the, the way you're describing this seems to be overwhelmingly positive. So um, first of all, were there any negative downsides to this? Were there any any unforeseen externalities or, or pitfalls? And then once we talk about that, you know, overall, was it positive and, and in what way? Yeah, there are definitely some downsides, uh, which I personally consider worth it, but other people might not if it happened to them. Like, I was very fortunate at the time that I had enough savings to live off of. I, I basically like, drained most of my savings through this because I stopped working. Uh, acid definitely interrupted my ability to function. And again, this is repeated doses. This, again, this is doses. you doing it weekly. <laughs> I feel like right. most people <laughs> that I know that have done acid have done it like once in the 70s, and that was enough. They or they did it you know, once a year or something like that, where it's it's a fairly in, infrequent occurrence. So you're doing it at a much, much higher rate, Yeah, doing it weekly. Yeah. Yeah. For most people, you take LSD and then you don't want to take it again. You're like, that was great educational. And I'm going to stay yeah, away That was the that best thing I never intend to repeat. What a wonderful one-time <laughs> experience that LSD sure was. Uh, and yeah, you, yeah, you were doing it. Uh, so you just, you like, and, and were you, um, I, I mean, if you're doing it once a week, I assume that you were functional and coherent the other six average days a week. Uh, was it just that you like, after you had the experience, you were like, what is work? Where, you know, do I really want to be doing this? Like kind of what was the, why couldn't you work the other days and just do it on weekends? Be a weekend well, tripper. After a while, oh, no, we, I wish I could have. I wish I could just like press a button to undo all that as of just on weekends. Um, but after a while, it's, it, it's, it bled into every waking moment. Like, like at, at that point, like I could do really high doses of acid and it would definitely affect me. But like my brain was already so altered that it didn't feel like a significant change. I was like, this is what I am already now. Um, it was like expected and it felt like like a lover, you know, like re-entering the arms of an old familiar lover. It was really good. Uh, but it drove me to the present moment. You know, like when you're on acid, you are here in the now uh-huh. and like fully accepting. And that's not great for work where you're like, you have to not accept your present moment without money in order to, to do things. There's a lot of like non-acceptance that, that factors into our function. Um, and so I like I, my relationship to food got worse because I just would get hungry and be like, well, that's interesting. And then not really do anything about it. Or I'd be like, I don't feel like working. I'm not going to do that. And I felt totally great about not working. Uh, every aspect of this, like when I like describe this to people, often people are very concerned because if you were in that situation where you were, suddenly didn't care about doing these things, you might associate this with depression or feeling bad or sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was none of this. I was 100% completely at peace. I was deeply happy. I was like, maybe I'll get homeless and die. That'd be interesting. So you, you basically were just completely zen to the point where you, yeah. you were happy with and fine with whatever occurred. Right. Um, and, and this is how I stopped doing it, actually. It was like I mentioned at some point I was like lying there and being like, I noticed like I'm not really working anymore. 
what happens if I just keep not working? And I was like, I'll probably end up homeless if I keep being in this. And and by the way, later I ended up talking to uh, Daniel Ingram, who, and I described this to him. And he said that this is like, this is a state that like, there's some monks that do this. Like they just exist, like nothing. And they just beg. He's like, that's, they, they function. Like, it's fine if that is your life path. Um, but at the time, I didn't know this. <laughs> and I figured, okay, if I become homeless, like I'm probably going to just end up dying because like, I'm going to be happy not eating. Like, it seems like the path here is death. And then once I realized that I was like, I should probably stop doing acid. So I stopped. <laughs> if, if, okay. So if I'd had this conversation with you, let's say three quarters of the way through your, your year long acid sojourn. Would if if we if you weren't on acid the day we were talking, would you have been this coherent and cogent and just kind of talking to the pros and cons with me as you were of like, yeah, you know, I, I like not working, I might die, uh, maybe I'll not do acid and go back to working. I mean, like, would would you have been as 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 um, as high functioning then as you are now? Um, almost, I think like the overall sentiment would have been clear. Uh, but I definitely had trouble tracking time. <laughs> I, I have, um, I've actually never talked about this to anyone, but I have at the time somebody contacted me from my old life and asked me to do a debate with a uh, Christian and it was recorded and put online. And at this time I was like blasted on LSE. I didn't like really fully understand how different it was. <laughs> I did not perform well. Like he was like a very fast, sharp, like clear person. Uh-huh. And then I was just like, <laughs> Like I couldn't track long-term sentences very well. Um, like you'd say one thing and then do another. And I would just have like physical responses to it. And like my, my mind was very slow moving, like an ocean. Um, it felt like I was like, like, you know, when drops are on the surface and then they begin to dry up and there's like space between them mm-hmm. or like, uh, like the cracks in, in deserts where you see like the cracks and sometimes the cracks are really big and it's like the little parts of the sand or islands. And that's what it felt like I was like when my mind was, I felt like I was just like these tiny little points and the rest of me was this great empty piece. And so <laughs> that trying to like interact with people, it was like, like, like I wasn't there almost. Okay. Um, and, and so I could say things, but often I would like lose what I was saying. I couldn't, I would forget and it, and it would like come back later. So it was very like offbeat. Even even when you weren't on acid, just kind of like in, in these lows between. Well, I wasn't on acid. Okay. So it sounds yeah. like if, if you're thinking about doing acid weekly, it would not be ideal for say an attorney or a surgeon uh, because it could interfere with some of those vocational attributes. Yeah, I would recommend that. Okay. Like <laughs> a taking vacation. Well, so, so that being said, though, you're not describing, like, our conversation so far has not had the timbre of a scared straight, like, kids, don't do this, it'll ruin your life. Like, you haven't really got off on that. So, but may I infer that this was overall, despite despite potentially starving to death, this is still a positive experience? Yeah, it was the best choice I ever made in my entire life. Really? Okay. I stopped suffering. Yeah. How, how so? What, like, <laughs> how did it, what, why, why so positive? Stop suffering. I, I don't suffer anymore. Uh, really? Yeah. That okay? Yeah. Huh. That, that's actually kind <laughs> of a still, good deal. <laughs> like, like a, yeah, I, I still definitely experience pain, right? Uh-huh. But like the relationship to it is very different. 
No, that's that's fascinating because, like, uh, I mean, in, in in Buddhism, there's a distinction between pain and suffering, right? So pain is the stimulus, which you can't affect. You you have very little effect on the fact that your body is cold or you dropped a hammer on your toe. But but suffering is the anguish which mentally accompanies it of, I, I know a guy's going to drop a hammer on my toe because he's clumsy, or I know it's going to be really cold next week. And, and it's the, the, the mental uh, correlation you have to that, that, that is suffering. And it sounds like you've gotten rid of that, which is great. Yeah, it's, it's pretty nice. It's also like kind of not profound. So like I, I did a, a, a series where I interviewed a bunch of people who claimed to be enlightened. Uh-huh. Um, and it came with like different categories, right? Because I don't know the word enlightened like really means or pe- people use it to, it to refer to very different things. Um, there is like a certain way that some people use it that seems to describe the thing that I hit. Um, also, other people have other ideas about it. I would, I would clearly not fit this uh, cat definition. Um, but it involves stuff like like, I feel like very deeply at peace. I feel like I understand who I am. I don't feel afraid of death. All, all the really nice stuff. And, and that's been permanent. I, I, I quit acid mostly in 2014. I take it like occasionally since then. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just seems to be the way things are now. But, but so, so it had like kind of a, a permanent palliative effect on just the, the travails and arrows of life where you're, you're not worried about mortality and you don't, you don't put in, I, I just the, the the mental effort to think about the pain, so you don't you don't have that suffering, or something like that, right? Like so so when I did all of the LSD and I was completely at peace and completely like I want to say like the word dead, but like that has such a negative connotation, like a zombie who's not there. Like anhedonic. But I, I was like, like was it because you could you were were you still capable of experiencing pleasure? Like if you ate chocolate, did you oh, like yeah. it? Okay, so you weren't anhedonic. I, I I would say this was like maybe the most alive I've ever been. Like. I, like, I want to say dead, but it's because like I wasn't there, but I was there. Like the like the me that I am now was gone, but there was like a being of light in its place, like just like an, an agony, like like just in complete pain and like complete joy at all times. It was like very intense. It was really great. Um, but what was I going to say? Oh yeah. Um, but when I like decided to stop doing LC, I was like, okay, I know I know what the end of this path is, and it is death, and I'm not afraid of it. But like, I just, I would just want to be a person now. Like I want to be alive. And so like, I came back and it was like clinging to the anxiety and the suffering. Like, like anytime I felt, you know, insecure about something, I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm insecure. This means I'm like, I'm attached. <laughs> this is great. And so, and so like, and now like I'm back, I, like I still experience like everything that normal people do. It's just, I really like it. Hmm. Like some part of me really likes it. I'm very grateful. Like I'm grateful for agony. I'm grateful for like falling in love and getting my heart broken and being worried about what people think of me and not doing anything and feeling like a piece of shit. Like it's all great. But it, but it sounds like you're also, I, I mean, because there's, there's so much to unpack, but it sounds like you're also very good now at being able to sort of separate the, the, I, I guess the, like if the mood is the is the climate and you're the landscape, like you're capable of going, oh, I'm feeling this thing, or like it's I, I don't know. There's some level of detachment you have that allows those feelings to be easier to deal with. Yeah, to some degree, I like and to be clear, I don't want to give like a false impression of where I'm at. Like I definitely could get consumed by bad things, and like sometimes a part of me that knows what I am like is like very quiet. Uh, but it's always like when I check, it's always there. So, so I, what I, I what know. I really want you to do now, because 
uh, like you can meet the Dalai Lama. Like if you go to Nepal, you can hang out with the Dalai Lama, particularly if you've got a big following, as I know you do, Ayla. So I really want you to go meet the Dalai Lama because I really want to know if he meets you, he's like, hey, you did it. Good job. What did you do? And you're like, I did acid for you. And he's like, you could you could shave off 50 years of meditation by just one year of acid? Oh my guys, get in here, get in here. Like that would be amazing. I kind of want to know what what happens if you if you meet one of these folks. You, I, you didn't interview him or somebody like him on your series, did you? Uh no, I interviewed a couple people who I'm not gonna name. I most of the people came to me and then I, I went after two people who have some sort of following. Okay. Um and then I talked to them. But people have very different opinions about this. Like a lot of like the the fancy schmancy people like do, really do not see psychedelics as a viable method for attaining like I don't know what their their conception right, is. Right, like, they gotta they gotta <laughs> meditate for fifty years. They don't want a bunch of Johnny come lately showing up in the back with acid and <laughs> managed to get into the theater. Yeah. Uh, and, and to be fair, some of the people who meditate really hard, like do have like abilities that I don't okay. uh, like some like I one one person I talked to said he can like slow down television frame rates, uh, his like perception to the point where he can like see the frame rates um, or like they like very like fine tuned control over their body. And it's like I that's not what <laughs> that's awesome. And it's I don't have that capacity at all. Well, So I, I know we got to wrap up a uh, wrap up here in a minute. Um, so to to bring it to the audience for somebody that's listening, that is never done any psychedelics before they've they've drank maybe they smoked marijuana but they're not they're they're virginal in terms of psychedelics what advice would you have for them if they're curious in terms of whether they should proceed or how they should proceed and in a way that is going to keep them safe and happy uh i would say don't go in with any grand expectations uh go in and just like have fun and look around like maybe the thing that you're going to find is incredibly petty maybe it's going to be profound who the fuck knows and either way it's totally fine second start small Start with small doses, work your way up. And then if you start to notice that you're having like feelings or orientations towards the world that like are not exactly what you want, then just stop and it, then no harm done. Like if it's a small enough dose, it doesn't mean anything. Um, if you do take a higher dose, you know, you probably know, like if you Google it, the internet will scream it at you, like get a trip sitter, set and setting, all of this fine stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, maybe this is my personal idiosyncrasy, idio, however you say that word, uh, but just like don't read stuff about uh, like, deep spiritual stuff online, uh, try and keep yourself like clean of that. Okay. Yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. Go in, go in blank slate. And then, and then finally, just to click, cause I, I know we've discussed this, but I just want to make sure you're okay. Like, like you, you did a tremendous amount of this. It, it didn't burn a hole through your brain. Like, I don't know. I enjoyed talking to you. You seem fine. Like, uh, so it, it seems that there's not the, the permanent damage, which might result from LSD is more likely to be something that was going to happen to somebody that already had underlying mental health issues or neurological things, not something that induces it. Right, most likely. And and to be clear, like I don't think LSD is completely risk free. Okay. Some people have taken LSD and like very much regret it. Um and some people like are just well suited to it. Like for example, my brain takes to it very well. Other brains have a completely different kind of reaction to it, to the point where it might as well be a different drug. So the point is to find out what kind of brain you have. And then if you have my kind of brain or like other people's, like, then go for it. And if you find out that you don't interact well with it, then stop. And this is the reason for the low doses, because it's a safe very low risk way. You're not going to like get fucked up or go psychotic on a very low dose at all. Okay. All right. Good to know. Uh, Ayla, it was delightful talking to you. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your, your extended trip. It was a wonderful chat. My pleasure. You're a great interviewer. Oh, thank you. And then um, do you have anything you want to point people towards? Um, you mentioned the Enlightenment series. I know you're on OnlyFans. Is there anything you'd like to to send people to? I have a, a blog. uh you can find all my stuff on knowingless.com, okay. K-N-O-W, knowingless.com. Uh, and I, I will say, I, I read through some of your blogs in preparation for this interview. 
It's fascinating stuff. Uh, I highly recommend that. Check it out. There's lots of fun stuff there. And thank you so much, Ayla. All right. Thank you. Eaton here. I have some closing thoughts I would like to put in you. In a free society, you own your own body. And you can put whatever you want in it, including food, drugs, and other people. With drugs, the government only needs to get involved in the event of negative externalities, drunk driving, burglaries, fish concerts. But if you're engaging in something that only directly affects you, I don't think the state has a moral imperative to criminally intervene. Or to put it another way, whether you are neglecting your responsibilities and causing mischief because of marijuana or because of video games, it's the output that I am concerned with, not the input. The government should primarily concern itself with the violence or property theft which accompanies drugs. If someone isn't bothering anybody, and it doesn't sound like Ayla was bothering anybody, I see no reason the government should bother them. Now, I'm not saying we should go sell heroin out of vending machines, but what I am saying is that I want society to treat drugs and addiction as a medical problem more than a criminal problem. And also, I think the war on drugs has... Afghanistan all over the place, and we need to rethink it. Now, I recognize that in the drug war is an aberrant position. This is not a normal position. Most Americans, when polled, think that alcohol and even marijuana should now be legal, but they stop short of psychedelics and party drugs. I would, on my end, I would legalize psychedelics tomorrow and, and have no issue with it. Party drugs, I'm still a little weird about, but I would say we ought to treat them medically rather than criminally. And the thinking for all of that for the normal American who thinks, nope, just alcohol, maybe marijuana, and everything else stops short, the, the thinking is something like this. Sure, Ayla can handle weekly LSD. She seemed to come out on the other side of that okay. And Heaton can probably do the odd two grams of mushrooms without forgetting to mow his lawn and pay taxes. But most people can't. And a lot of people will go off the deep end and never come back. So we should ban those harmful drugs to protect them because not everybody's going to be rational. And society at large would have to deal with all of the violence and theft and very legitimate heartbreak that addicts cause. So we should ban everything except for alcohol, cigarettes, and marijuana to spare people from the heartbreak of addiction and all of the externalities and so forth. I think that's what most people would say, that it would be crazy to do otherwise. Most people think that. If you also think that, and it's fine if you do, this is a big tent podcast, uh, and, and I know people come here because they enjoy encountering ideas, many of which they disagree with. But if you're in that camp and you're thinking, Heaton's nuts to want to legalize psychedelics, that is a step too far for me. I want to give you a homework assignment to noodle as you're in the shower sometime later today. If we accept the premise that we can tell people what they can do with their body in order to protect society from addiction and crime, which seems to be what our current drug policy is predicated on, in that case, by what metric do you judge the chemicals that we ban or legalize? Because I've seen the destruction of alcohol firsthand. I have stared that demon in the face, and I, I know what that does to families, and I know that what, that what that does to society as a whole. And the stats are pretty good that alcohol is a malevolent force in our society, drunk drivers, violence, addiction, broken homes, lost productivity, date rape, bar fights. It causes a lot of trouble. There is an abundance of data on the widespread, demonstrably deleterious effects of alcohol, which is very normal culturally for us and legal. Meanwhile, 
all the data I've seen on hallucinogenics is that they are not addictive, which alcohol and tobacco are, and that they don't have a correlation with violence, which alcohol often does. People on mushrooms, anecdotally, want to hug each other and stare at trees. People on LSD want to sit around and listen to music and maybe eventually go on OnlyFans. So my question to you is, relying on data, making rational decisions for ourselves rather than just whatever we've always done is right, relying on data and empiricism and objectivity rather than inertia, make the case for me that psychedelics are more harmful to society than alcohol. That writ large, factoring in all of the crime, liver disease, emotional disturbances, broken families, and so forth, make the argument for me that psychedelics are worse. Or that if we could pick an alternate universe where alcohol was illegal, but magical mushrooms were legal, that that world would be worse off than ours is. I'm going to posit that you can't, but I'm open. If you're on Patreon, by all means, post your thoughts on this episode. This is a weird episode. <laughs> this is such a weird episode. Uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. And uh, please use that as a message board. Share your thoughts. Uh, and and if, if, you, if you disagree with my hypothesis that, that psychedelics are actually more benign for society than alcohol, I look forward to your response. If you're not on Patreon, feel free to tweet at me. I am at Mighty Heaton and look forward to hearing from you. And I'll throw this out here. While I have said that I do not consider myself by any means an expert on psychedelics, I have now publicly admitted to having done mushrooms a couple of times. So for the next bonus episode, if you guys want, I will talk about that on the bonus episode. I prefer to do it behind the paywall for a few reasons, but I will, uh, assuming that that's something that people would be interested in, I will talk to my good friend Josh Jennings uh, about uh, my experiences, which have been positive, and be able to allow a little bit of firsthand green room chat on that. You can get in on that by going to patreon.com slash That's the show. Thanks for listening. Thank you, media assistant Eric Stipe, who edited today's program. Dead, clean, sober. Thank you, Sarah Rose Siskin, for coming on to discuss psychedelics. Thank you, Ayla, for talking with us about your year-long experiment in LSD and more. And thank you, patrons of the show, who make this weird but hopefully engaging and intellectually stimulating show possible. You have my gratitude. Until next time, I've been Andrew Heaton. And so have you.